Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for the episode is Michaela Chamberlain. Michaela Chamberlain trained at the Bowlby Center and also studied in the Psychoanalysis Unit at the University College London. Shortly after qualifying at the Bowlby Center in 2016, she started teaching Freud and attachment theory and became chair of the Bowlby Center. She worked as an honorary psychotherapist in two NHS trusts for several years. She has presented clinical papers at public forums and has been published in the journal Attachment, New Directions in Psychotherapy and Relational Psychoanalysis, New Associations, and the New Psychotherapist magazine. She was the keynote speaker at the British Psychological Society's Psychotherapy Division Conference in 2022. She's currently carrying out a doctoral research project on a psychoanalytic reading of gendered blood in live art and psychoanalytic writing at Roehampton University. She is in private practice in London as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and as a supervisor and training therapist. She joins us today to talk about her book, Misogyny in Psychoanalysis, published in 2022 by Phoenix Publishing House, Firing the Mind is their imprint, and they're at firingthemind.com. Michaela, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sure. I've been reading this book for a while now. We begin all of our interviews on the channel with the question, as far as we can know our own motivations, what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I have to say, it's hard to pin down just one motivation, as I almost see it as um, the product in some ways of cumulative trauma, in that my original, very original starting point for this was an interest in menstruation, in that during my time when I was training, I was working with somebody who had psychosis, who she was convinced it was linked to her menstrual cycle. And it most certainly seemed that that was absolutely the case and I remember going back to my um, group supervisor who is one of these amazing supervisors who had encyclopedic knowledge and would always be giving you references and papers to read and sort of went back to sort of excitedly going where do I start with this you know where do I start reading on this and she looked at me and she said well you know you write the papers and I'll edit the book for you at which point I was really taken aback by going, you know, where's all this writing on menstruation then? And she said, well, you know, go and have a look and bring back whatever you find. And I did. And it was pretty minimum, to be frank, um, which was really startling for me, especially when you think you're in the sort of domains of psychoanalysis where you have, you know, all this talk of micturation and feces and, you know, what bodily fluids mean. And yet one that seemed quite obvious to me in the passing of menstrual blood every month, that was somehow absent. Um, So I started looking into menstruation and it occurred to me the more that I started looking at it, combined with lots of experiences through training, is that actually this lack of writing was a symptom of something much, much bigger. And for me, that much bigger thing was misogyny. And finding and looking at it through that kind of lens, theoretically, also really matched with the experiences that I had had during training, not just in my own training institution at all, but I've trained at most of the other main um, psychoanalytic institutions in the UK. And that overriding feeling of the male gaze which was astounding and also in forums, conferences that were presented was just quite gobsmacking for me, given from where I was coming from. So in some ways, it was a sort of a rising force in me that I had to write these papers because it shook me that it wasn't being talked about and it wasn't on the agenda. Well, and and sort of being shook, the um, on the back of the book, 
uh, Adam Phillips, um, who writes, he says, it seems astonishing that this is the first psychoanalytic book about misogyny and about the misogyny in psychoanalysis. I mean, really, it is just mind-blowing. Mm. I mean, I don't know what you think. It, it just seems extraordinary that in the field that puts just about everything on the couch and really wants to think about it, the one thing it never puts itself is, is puts itself on the couch and thinks about this institution of psychoanalysis. What does it do? Look at the real foundings of it as well. And especially given that it's a predominantly female-led field, that that hasn't really been high up there. The case of women has been high up there a bit, but, you know, it gets kind of in this niche market of feminist psychoanalysis, which, again, seems absolutely monstrous to me. We sort of need to abolish that because it's kind of like, well, if it's psychoanalysis that is about women and that's feminist, then what is the rest? So it doesn't quite make sense. And again, it, it is, I, I had that same sort of, um, response and I was you know trawling through looking at papers looking at kind of researching for the book and looking up misogyny and there was just not this wealth of information that I was after and most certainly absolutely um, nothing that I could find or very minimal work that I could find that was looking at actually how does it get played out in the clinical setting which is the really important stuff here if we really think about it that this has a direct impact on everybody coming to analysis coming to therapy and also everybody working in it that if we're not looking at misogyny if we're not looking at what's going on then you know we know key psychoanalytic tenant is getting played out then Ooh, that's so much there i just went in my mind it sort of jumped through the book when you said about um, you know women practitioners there's somewhere in the book where i think someone either at the Bowlby Center or quotes Bowlby somehow suggesting that, that women do the work, but men do the, the <laughs> theoretical rigor. What was that? What? I don't remember specifically. Yeah, it, well, it was repeated to me by somebody, a very senior analyst and very established analyst, had great gravitas, who um, would throw in to me as a, as a reminder that, you know, Bowlby always said that therapy was women's work meaning the practice of psychotherapy was women's work because, of course, the implication was the theoretical stuff was for men. And it was given that it was as a woman, I'm a cisgendered woman, that it was being said to. Uh, I would be a bit paralysed by it, to be frank. So I, I was in training as well. And I was a bit kind of like, what, what am I meant to take from that? What, what, you know, what is there a secret meaning to this? And it became clear that there wasn't really a secret meaning to it at all. It was just a sort of given of, you know, well, women are better at this. And, and you know, but the, the downside to it being, well, women are better at the chatting bit and the talking and the feeling bit. But the really important bit, well, that's for men. And it, it just astounded me that that could be said in a modern context, that that wasn't something that was being said to me in the 70s, to be honest. And especially I have a background of working in the NHS, worked in the NHS for many, many years. And I came from a field where comments like that, I mean, people might have thought them, obviously, to be, to be frank, but you, they would never be said out loud. But it astounded me that it could just be said out loud and that that was just a given. And that, I guess that's the bit for me that really needs to be called to account in psychoanalysis. And also that sort of entitlement, to be frank, that it, it's on one level, is, there's a thing about me as a trainee working through that and processing that. And it was lovely to think, oh, that was just one man who said that. But as you go on and you read through the papers and you read the actual foundations of psychoanalysis, that's not really the case. Let's sort of see if we can go in order here with the foundations of psychoanalysis. Let's just, well, let's start uh, at the at the top of the book and certainly at the top of psychoanalysis. What is uh, the inherent misogyny of the Oedipus complex? This, I mean, there's a lot of inherent misogyny theoretically in Freud. I mean, I think I'm not clearly not the first person to say that, and I'm clearly 
not the first person at all to attack Freud for a phallocentric model. But there is um, a key um, difficulty with the Oedipus complex in that as a little girl, that little girl has to realise that there is a lack in her due to not having a penis. And it really is as fundamental as that. And that if she wants to resolve this anxiety, then she needs to resign herself to her inferior position. And these are, you know, Freud's terminology here. So that instead of her longing for her own penis, instead she contents herself that one day she'll be happy to marry a man and have a baby instead. And that is the fundamental tenet of it. Of course, the Oedipus complex and understandings of the Oedipus complex have moved on, have changed, have been put into various iterations. You know, we have a wonderful consternation from um, Jessica Benjamin that puts it in the relational model. But however, there's these fundamental facts, which the Oedipus complex theoretically, and one of the difficulties, as most people tell you, of reading Freud, and perhaps the joy for some people if you're a little bit more masochistic, is that he's constantly changing theory. So you have to kind of keep up with these theoretical changes and how they interweave with each other. However, the Oedipus complex never changes. And so if you have that, and Freud describing, you know, this realisation of a lack of his penis as permanently marking the woman's sense of self, causing, I think he says, and forgive me if I'm not quoting exactly, but a scar, a sense of an inferiority, then you have that underpinning this theory. And then that theory, the Oedipus complex, is then repeated in papers still today. It's repeated in conferences. It's talked about this being an Oedipal conflict. It's talked about people being stuck at the Oedipal stage. But it's always referencing this hideous language of misogyny. And yet that is never reappropriated. It's never, it might be sometimes referred to an updated version. But what exactly does that mean? And it's hugely important, not just to go, oh, it's updated and we've moved on from that. But I'm sitting there as a woman, and each time that is mentioned, it's a sort of, you know, a little resonance in me of going, I'm being reminded of my place here. And what is this discipline that I'm in that is still referring back to something that is so clearly misogynistic? And that's the problem with it. And the problem with it is it almost gives a kind of hall pass in that it hasn't been addressed. It's been revised, it's been updated. The term is still used. And I'd like to call something quite radical in that, that term to just stop being used full stop because it's inherently offensive. But it's more that it's a, a subtle kind of cutting away at going, actually, this is permissible, this is okay, and it isn't. Well, the permissible and the okay, and also being put in your place, um, you, you talk about how that is done in the casual way of saying Bowlby said or Freud said, and that by, that, that by bracketing what you're about to say with that, it's almost like the, the Freud said is the Trojan horse that brings in the misogynistic idea and that you're, you're reminded of where you are in the, the pecking order. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good image to describe it as a Trojan horse. Thank you for that, because it it really is. I mean, and that's, and again, you know, psychoanalysis has been referred to as a religion. And I think it's moments like that when you're sitting in conferences or hearing papers being presented or being discussed and people say, well, Freud says that you really kind of feel that you're in cult territory here because it's kind of, you know, you accept that one phrase, then it means all things go. And of course, you know, people focus on the papers that they like. And this most certainly isn't um, a discourse about, you know, let's slam Freud and be anti-Freud. What I'm talking about is actually we need to take on the traumas that have been caused by past analytic gods and that we need to actually bring them into reality a bit so that we we choose a discipline that is exciting and open and inclusive of all. And we acknowledge those traumas. And in that sense, it's it's that Trojan horse that actually needs to be looked at, needs to be addressed, because it, it adds in all manners of traumas for all sorts of people. Well, it's interesting um, because you talk about, you know, when you're in training um, and you're in a somewhat dependent position and uh, and and. You, you talk about, you know, oh, my gosh, I was struggling to read Freud um, 
And, and I see this with, I just finished teaching a course for uh, actually in a, a master's program. So preclinical people, and they would struggle with the material. And I suggested to them that if you're struggling with the material, don't assume you're stupid, assume it's poorly written. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a way not to attack yourself, because I think you write in the book, I'm reading Freud and I'm struggling going, wait a minute, this was a man writing for men. It was never meant for me. Um, I mean, it is, it's, it's, it's hilarious. And what a great thing to say to people, you know, kind of change it around, think that it isn't well written. But I, I guess the bit is, you know, and having taught Freud as well, the point at which people come to read Freud, they're terrified. And it's this whole reification of Freud It's kind of put so much on a pedestal that people are almost afraid to go near it. Also, they want to attack it and pull it down straight away or they get completely paralyzed by it. But I think the moment of realization for me came, and I've, I've read Freud so many times over so many years, is that when I was studying him in a very large group, so there were about 30 of us studying him, and you'd see people, and, and each time again, I just thought, this just isn't for me, Freud just isn't for me. I, I, you know, I love the certain sentences that I loved, but you know, I'm really struggling with this, my mind just doesn't work this way. And then was in this group of people and it was after I'd qualified and everybody was kind of studying um, Freud. And it suddenly struck me that people that who had, you know, were much younger than me, had significantly less experience than me, but were just going, oh, yeah, this is really easy. and kind of getting it. And then I looked around and thought, well, who are these people who are getting this? Go, oh, maybe it's that. I'm trying to narrow it down. Could not see what was in front of me. And it was a group of men. And then it occurred to me that the group I was talking with, who were all kind of getting very frantic about it because it was leading up to exam time, was a group of women. And at that moment, the penny dropped. And then through subsequently teaching it through different groups, I sort of did my own sort of little observation in each group. And the men struggle so far less with Freud than the women do. And then I, there was once when I was teaching, we were doing um, the um, case study of Dora. And you see how emotional people get about it as well. And it's women that have some ways a stronger reaction to it, which is not to say that this is all the case at all. But it's those moments when things just combine that you kind of go, yeah, of course, there's this othering as you're reading it, that actually this is men talking about. And even, you know, in the case of Little Hands, it's these men talking about what these women are doing with their children and talking about, you know, how women behave. But unless you start addressing that as you're teaching Freud and kind of go, yeah, this is, you know, some white middle class guy who is talking about these younger women and what's going on for them, then it becomes like you can't go there. And it's that sort of shocking bit when you kind of go, yeah, as a woman, you might have a different reaction to this than men. And then you can actually have a conversation about it. And I think then really interesting conversations open up, actually. Yeah, well, oh God, <laughs> so much in all of this. I have never. Um, uh, so this, because it, it, all right. Well, I'll, I'll stay here then. The uh, the white middle class man explaining what's going on for women, and back where we started with, oh well, this is women's work. They're intuitive. They're intuitive. They're intuitive. And yet, and I think either the second or the third chapter, the the truly awful story of what happened to this this mother that to say, well, you are innate at this, but then if you fail at innateness of motherhood, that everything is, that there's no winning to being a woman, no matter which road you choose, you're at fault. Which mm, mm. is crippling, isn't it? I mean, for anybody, that's crippling. But that is the nature in some ways of motherhood for all, I think, and, and well, well, well beyond, you know, the field of psychoanalysis is that, you know, if, you, if you're if you a good mother or good enough mother, as Winnicott would have it, although heaven knows what that actually means, to be frank, and I've really studied it to try and work that out. You know, and I know all the tropes around what Winnicott meant by good enough, but literally, what you know, in practice, when you've got a baby and you're changing nappies and you're feeding, what, at what point is good enough? But, you know, when you actually look at it and you kind of go, well, if you're a good mother, yeah, because that's what you're meant to do. If you're struggling, well, you're a bad mother, so then you're criticised for that. So you really can't win. 
And the problem is that when you have these tropes and you have things like, you know, Winnicott, obviously his main papers written in the 1960s, but people are still referring back to them. I think um, one of his papers is still the highest number one or ranked highest number one on PEP webs, regularly still being downloaded and, and rightly so. But if you don't have an updated version of it, and if you don't have a view that is bigger than just how the mother and baby should be, and this kind of you know unit status of the mother and child being together in this kind of oneness, as though that's how real life is, and that's how you know a mother should be, then you have real difficulty when you go into the clinical setting and you see a mother struggling or you see a mother not quite knowing what the baby's cry means and being really upset by that and distressed. And if you haven't had experience of that and you set out into the world of psychoanalysis, then it all gets really soul destroying, to be frank, and also furthers to this misogyny, this kind of othering of women, that they become not... um, a person in their own right with their own subjectivity with a sexuality as well as being a mother but almost it becomes a sort of stereotype and so then you have the problem of actually that being pathologized when women start to struggle and what that means and the ramifications of that and particularly the case study where I talk about the mother with the child with autism are just horrendous you know, and, and that case study, um, I tend not to write actually um, about people that I work with. It's somebody that I know very well. For ethical reasons, I don't really like working, um, writing about my work. But it's somebody who I knew very well. But their story most certainly was not unique, which is why I wrote it, because it was an amalgamation of other stories as well of how people are treated. And the psychoanalysis place where she was attending was a very well-known psychoanalysis centre, which was also anecdotally very much avoided by the mothers in her school because it was local to it and it was known to be really punishing for mothers. But I'm not sure that was ever fed back or has ever been fed back to that place. But that's the impact of all of this. That That's the sort of real life impact of all of this, which is what needs to be taken into account. Right. And the, I mean, in, in the story, uh, the, the fact that it was really powerful, uh, if I can find the sentence here, that, um, so the mother who is supposed to be innate and just, it's all should be natural and whatever. Um, but that the, because the report comes from the mother, therefore it's suspect. So the one who's supposed to know is then not allowed to know. Is your child a good baby? And 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 the mother saying this is what's going on. And then so the one who is an eight and the one who's to know is then when she makes a report, you write dismissed because she is the mother. Asked I mean, to contain all of the badness. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing that um, struck me particularly with her story is that it wasn't just the badness. She was asked to actually take all the clinician's anxieties that she would meet with. Because the story is about how the mother discovers that her daughter has autism. And so she starts off with this baby, which in retrospect hits all the markers of a baby with autism into being an infant, into being a young child at school, actually. With hindsight, it's very clear. But the mother clearly didn't know what was going on. The clinicians she met with really didn't know what was going on. And it's not unusual either for clinicians not to be aware of how a young girl might present with autism. We're still very much stuck in the male view of autism. But at each point, even when the child is six weeks old, um, I think maybe a little younger than that, when she goes to the GP and asks the GP for help because they can't settle the child, the GP sort of fobs her off as though, oh, well, it's maternal anxiety. But it it really, the anxiety is the GP, the general practitioner, because he didn't know what was wrong with the baby. And so just sends her away. And then equally, when she meets the psychologist, she has to take on the psychologist's anxiety as well, because the psychologist doesn't quite know what's going on. And the parents have done a lot of research around this and really, you know, so come up with all these plans around how to help the child beyond what the clinicians were able to do. And so the clinicians then keep passing the buck back. And the only thing they can keep coming up with is, 
there's a problem with the mother without even actually meeting and talking to the dad, which is the bit that was really interesting in it, actually, because the dad was fully active. It wasn't as though the dad was off at work. The, the parenting was shared 50-50. But yet there's this sort of um, passing on of this misogynistic interject, and particularly once they got into um, services that were more psychodynamically orientated, it became very clear that the problem was with the mother, even though the mother actually hadn't really been talked to. The mother would attend appointments with the child if the child could attend them because the child was finding them very distressing. But yet in each of the clinicians, the go-to place was there's a problem with the mother until the final point came when it was broken and the mother actually, they managed to get the child referred to another service that was more psychologically orientated and was very knowledgeable about autism who straight away recognised what was going on. And almost like the spell was broken. But there's this um, problem in that the mother would say, you know, as you refer to, that if there was a serious meeting, she'd make sure that the dad would miss work and come. Or they'd get a babysitter for their other children so that the dad could be at the meeting because they would ref they'd defer to the father, even though the mother would be saying the same thing. But she could tell that they just weren't listening. And, which is just horrific in this day and age, if you actually think about it. Yeah, and that that story, just deferring to well, deferring to the man in the room happens, as you say, everywhere. It happens everywhere. Um, and then the interject. Uh, I thought there was a uh, an observation that you make. Where you write that the real concern is the speed with which the belief becomes apparent. Barely any time is given to understand this mother before a general principle about all mothers is applied. Um, and that you write, the therapist became the mother's harsh internal voice. It's, I mean, it's devastating, isn't it's it? It's devastating. Quite, it's, it was a really hard story to write, to be frank. Um and I did it absolutely with the consent of the person involved. I managed to anonymize it enough because I wanted to get in the generalities. I didn't want it to just be, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. But to, And I looked at the Facebook groups, um, particularly around children who can't attend school, and looked at what they were going through and what they were facing um, in the school at the, where their children just couldn't attend. And some of whom had diagnosed autism at that point, some of whom didn't. And the stories was just the same, that there was parental blame, um, which was huge, but the parental blame predominantly would be aimed at the mother. And that was what shocked me. And it particularly shocked me in that, you know, I, I'm not clearly, you know, I've lived in the world long enough to know it's not really surprising as a woman when you go into a professional setting, even if it's another woman who's opposite you, you may well face that. And yeah, you, you know, especially as a mother, you worry too much. It's, you know, and you're not taken so seriously. What shocked me was when she went into a psychodynamically, psychoanalytically minded institution, and yet they doubled down on it. That it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even considered that they might have it wrong. That it wasn't even considered that perhaps this child did have autism, even though the mother had requested an assessment for autism. It was automatically assumed that it was the mother's fault. And then, of course, the institution, as it were, and the many people she met within it, became this harsh superego for her. Because in many ways, that's what women face all the time, right? In that, you know, if you're a mother and you're struggling, the world tells you you're doing a bad job because this should be natural. You should be able to do it. And unfortunately for her and her background, it coalesced into this horrible story that became really paralyzing until, you know, you have this final moment in the scene where the father comes along and gets extremely um, irate with the psychiatrist who actually asks the parents what the parents want her, want her to do. And at that point, the father kind of breaks it and goes, you know, if I walked into a, you know, an emergency room and I had a broken leg, I wouldn't be expected to ask how I should fix it. You need to do this. And at that point, almost he became the harsh superego. And the two women he was speaking to, the psychiatrist and the systemic therapist, then actually made the referral and got the assessment done for autism. But it, it's, it's shocking how that the speed with which the changeover happens. And in part... Um, 
I think that speed is that in many psychoanalytic trainings um, and psychotherapeutic trainings, the misogyny is not addressed. It's not there. It's not spoken about. There are so many ideas touted around how mothers should be, how women should be, how women should dress, how women should look. We don't actually sit back and go, why are we saying that? What's that about? What are we saying about women here? Instead, it's more around taking from this moral high ground of we know how women should be. And clearly that can't be right. Well, how women should dress reminds me of the you, you cover Freud's uh, wild analysis um, and in which the, the desire that women are asked to contain all of it, the desire is seen as so overwhelming, so bottomless, that the object of desire becomes the thing to be controlled rather than the desire itself. So a complete abdication from from the, the male gaze. I wanted I want to talk about gaze um, simply because if we're talking about the foundation of the entire discipline, you know, are we are we considering that the that the starter yeast for the whole endeavor is misogynistic, and that everything is fruit from the same poisonous tree? Um, you write about Abramovic uh, and an art show um, and the and the need of the face, and so is. Is it a hypothesis that the, the use of the couch or the couch position is misogynistic or can be? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because, you know, there's that argument, isn't it, that if you can't get a patient on the couch or the, couch, the patient is reluctant to go on the couch, then it's a denial of femininity, you know, that they can't be submissive. And, of course, the femininity, the word feminine, is used as synonym for submissive and passive, which, you know, even as I'm saying it, it's, it's sort of, you know, sticking the back of my throat to be saying those words, to be frank. But it's there, you know, and still in contemporary writing, you have leading figures writing about, you know, passive and active as feminine and masculine. And I think there's something about the language, something about, because feminine, of course, is attached to women. So, and all people who identify as being a woman. So in that sense, yeah, that's misogynistic. We need to really do a rethink on that and a serious restructure because those ideas of what feminine, what a woman is, are grossly outdated. And I think there is an absolute argument for saying there are um, certain foundations within psychoanalysis that are misogynistic, absolutely. And I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, ripping up the whole playbook. Um, it's most certainly about revisiting it and admitting those traumas that have happened and, you know, not continuing that paternalistic attitude and admitting that, you know, psychoanalysis has lived under a patriarchy for many, many years and continues to. And I don't think it's just around um, theory, you know, um, it, it's more around if you look at the, it's the practice as well that is the real problem. You know, even if you think about, the International Psychoanalytic Association, founded in 1910. Um, since then, I think it's something, like a bit, and this might be a little bit outdated because this was 2022, had 25 presidents, all of whom were men, until the first and only female president was appointed in 2017. Now, I mean, that, when I was researching that, I, I was really seriously shocked, you know? And, and you think of that and you kind of go, what's going on? with that really you know this is a female-led field and yet the people in power I would expect that if I looked at banking or something like that you know instead of I was looking at goodness this is the International Psychoanalytic Association you know that how is there been no sort of um, reflection on that awareness of that and that's the bit that struck me is the lack of awareness. Well when you say uh president um, in 2008 in the United States, in the presidential primary for the general, it was then Senator uh, Hillary Clinton versus Senator Barack Obama. And it was it was very tight. And whatever state was was being voted for next, um, and it's Bill Clinton, who's really problematic to quote in a <laughs> book on misogyny. But Bill Clinton <laughs> said something when it was between Obama and, and Mrs. Clinton, and he said, we are about to find out now as a country if we are more racist or more misogynistic. And we were more misogynistic. 
Yeah. It's, it's not really surprising, though, is it? No. I mean, unfortunately, I think even if you look at um, what's happened with the Me Too movement, you know, pe- people often ask me, I've been talking about the book, is kind of, you know, what what is there to be done? Like, how do we solve this? It's like such a big problem. And I most certainly do not have all the answers to that. But I think um, there was one thing that really struck me in London um, in two years ago, we had a murder of Sarah Everard by British police officer Wayne Cousins. And it was really shocking. People came out into the streets to protest. It was during the lockdown and during COVID. And he pulled her over. They think he said to her that, you know, that um, she was breaking the rules and arrested her. And he ended up murdering her and raping her. It was a horrific murder. But And people took to the streets. They sort of had a reemergence of the kind of 1970s, kind of reclaiming the streets. People clicked, but talked to the streets. And it was this real kind of, you know, the patriarchy, challenging of the patriarchy, these kind of male figures. And at that time, it's very shortly after it as well, contemporaneously, there was um, two women that were murdered and police officers um, took photos of their dead bodies and published them uh, as well, which was just absolutely horrific. And anyhow, the point that struck me is just before that, we'd had the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't know about you, but my inbox was flooded with trainings, supervisions, um, groups talking about race, quite rightly so, and really addressing it and really wanting to think about it. And thank goodness we've started to have that conversation and move things along a little bit, clearly nowhere near where they should be. The thing that struck me after Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallwood, who were two women who were photographed, and after Sarah Everard's death, absolute silence in terms of trainings, absolute silence in terms of conferences. There was no thought when you had statistics of, I think at the time there was um, statistics taking place in the UK, 50% of women said that they would stop leaving their house after dark following the murder of Sarah Everard. So huge impact on women at that time. And again, this patriarchal figure of the police and what it had done, there was no thought of what that might mean in the clinical room. There was no thought of what that might mean for a clinician sitting down, a male clinician sitting down with a new female patient coming in or vice versa. There was no consideration to think about actually, you know, psychotherapies. Do we not need to think about what is going on for people here about actually foundationally, you know, in a real unconscious level, what is going on, this fear that is being ignited? Nothing. Absolute radio silence. And that's the bit that really struck. You know, in some ways I thought, oh, there's going to be a big, you know, upsurge now of people talking about misogyny. Zero. There was one conference, um, I think, last year that was on the roots of misogyny that was um, held by um, the British Psychoanalytic Institute, I think with somebody else, the British Psychoanalytic Society, uh, which was an amazing um, conference, a one day conference. But only literally towards the end of the day was there a mention of perhaps we need to think about whether our institution is actually misogynistic. And that was it. And that I haven't seen any kind of uh, conference after it from that. But that's the bit that you kind of go, well, this isn't really surprising, is it, when you look at that? And it isn't really surprising when you look at the lack of writing on misogyny and what it might mean. You know, even if you look at Andrew Tate recently as well, where, um, yeah, absolutely terrifying I know in schools, schools have been flooded with trainings and there are training organisations specifically to go in to train up teachers to actually go in and hold classes with schools as well around Andrew Tate, around misogyny, around online misogyny and talking to them, like really grappling with it. Like, how do you engage boys in this conversation? What does it mean for girls in the classroom? Like really important conversations taking place. Where are those conferences in psychoanalysis? Where's the thinking around that? Zero as far as I know. Well, and so to go back to the foundations of psychoanalysis, I have a hypothesis that, um, you know, uh, Freud uh, says to HD, he says, I really hate being the mother in the transference. I hate it. I feel so very masculine. And of course, Ferenczi says the analyst must be like a caring mother. And I think that the 
objection to you know the mutual analysis with Elizabeth uh, Severn, where she puts Ferenczi on the couch to deal with his misogyny, and I think Freud's you know rage and throwing him out is that you're you're trying to upend my theory. I think that was a misogynistic rage, because Ferenczi Ferenczi took the couch position and had a woman talk to him about his misogyny. I mean, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? it? You know what gets played out, and of course, you know it. It's the point that it's still there, isn't it? And I think there are absolute foundations. I mean, it's interesting to even think about actually, you know, what is misogyny? What are the causes of misogyny? What is it actually saying? And in some respects, actually, is misogyny a developmental failure? You know, and if it is, in that case, you know, Freud's definitely failed on that one. But I guess the point is that it's not even on the chart. And perhaps that's for good reason in that it couldn't be on the charts. It was so scotomized within the psychoanalytic thinking of that time. It just never even made it as being something that was of importance. When you said failure of the mind, and then you know we, you brought up uh, racism and Black Lives Matter, there's a hypothesis by a member of the British Psychoanalytical Society, um, M. Fockery Davids. Um, and his idea, his hypothesis, He says that racism, like the impulse to destroy or act on hatred, is an ineluctable part of us all. And he says um, he names an internal racist organization as a normal part of the mind, deeming it non-pathological component of psychic structure. Could we say the same thing? Is there an internal misogynistic organization of the mind? And I don't know if we can. I just did, when you you brought that up, Ryan, I just <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I wonder yeah. if there's a connection. Yeah, I think there absolutely is a connection. And Fakri David's work is so interesting and so thought provoking around it. I mean, it feels absolutely devastating, doesn't it, to actually think this is um, an sort of immovable object in some respects, or something that you just have to acknowledge and work with. I'm not sure I want to be as pessimistic as to say that misogyny is, you know, an ineluctable part of the mind. I think it's more complex than that in some respects, in that I think misogyny tells you a lot about what we've done to women. Um, and I don't mean as in um, for, to even go to the place, because it's obvious what misogyny has done to women in some respects. But if we to go to the place of seeing it as a developmental failure or an elect, sorry, an ineluctable part of the mind, then it's almost admitting defeat. And in some respects, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about uh, societal restructuring around misogyny, which may be for racism too. Um, in that I don't share that it's an immovable object. Actually, I think there is something around what we have done with our hate and anger that has found suitable receptacles. And I think in that respect, yeah, given the current structure of society, it, it feels like it's, it is an absolute part of who we are and our structure. But I would say that's man-made, and I'm being very specific when I say man-made. Yes. Well, and also just I think we should point out, uh, I've never seen this, and you write in the book, somebody uh, defines misogyny as the law enforcement branch of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Which I really is like. Um, There's Kate Mann, who, um, her, yeah, Kate Mann, her two books um, are absolutely phenomenal writing on misogyny, actually. And she has a new book coming out called Unshrinking, which is just, again, needs to absolutely be, be applied to the psychoanalytic field, which is around how our bodies are controlled, how women's bodies are controlled by men and the male gaze, and actually how you sort of free yourself of it. And in some ways, that's the bit that um, for me in writing this book, which was um, quite terrifying to do to begin with, in that I had a constant male gaze with me of thinking, you know, how is this going to be received? What are people going to think of this? Am I going to be completely shot down for it? And actually having to really grapple with my own internalized misogyny to get past that was really interesting. And in a sense, that kind of male gaze, that kind of law enforcement as well is that that's what you've got to really grapple with and really challenge. Because the minute that you can kind of free yourself of that, or at least know what you're fighting, then it means you can think all sorts of things. 
Whereas actually where we're stuck, and I think this is the relevance for me, because I'm very passionate about the possibilities of psychoanalysis, is that actually the more that we straightjacket ourselves with the laws of Freud, with the laws of these misogynistic um, shibboleths that have been passed down, the more we're lessening our possible for creativity. And surely that has to be the point of psychoanalysis. Yes. Well, you talk about writing the book and... and um all that you were contending with, there's a, a, a woman analyst in New York named Claudia Louise. We had her on the program and she wrote a book called The Making of a Psychoanalyst and it's her story and her journey. And, the, and I think she calls it, I think the subtitle is The Emotional Education of the Clinician. She made a very conscious choice. There are no citations, none. She has no, there is zero citations. And of course she was uh, roundly criticized for not, you know, paying homage to the fathers. Yeah, and, and I think that's the extraordinary bit in it. I know um, one comment I got on my book was about how it's um, anecdotal. And the thing that um, it actually made me laugh, because in a way, if you look at all of Freud's case studies, they're anecdotes. But yet somehow, I can't say what my lived experience was, perhaps because it wasn't fitting with what somebody wanted to hear, maybe, or maybe it came across as being too, um, you know, too uh, not having all those references, et cetera, that are needed. But it's part of that patriarchal legacy, isn't it? That actually there's the sort of story around, which I find quite extraordinary. It's, it can be quite hard to find psychoanalytic writers that are engaging. Because there is this sort of, again, this thing that has been passed on, that you have to pay due deference. You have to do your time and really, you know, nod your head and acknowledge the people who have gone before you. When actually, you know, why? Why are we straightjacketing ourselves in that way? Why does it have to be that one thing? It would be much more fun if it's not. I want to ask you about a question near the the, the end of the book, which, um, what is the psychoanalytic tradition of negatively hallucinating women? It's <laughs> quite a big question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we have a big topic. <laughs> it's true. I'm trying to like, summarize that neatly. Um, I think that we've talked a lot about it in theoretical terms about this kind of, you know, negatively hallucinating women. I think there is something... Um, which for me is much more interesting, actually, in that how we negatively hallucinate women in a clinical setting in practice and actually how we do it and how it starts off through training and how it starts off by, you know, we don't go, right, you're going to sit down, you're going to read you know, these canons of psychoanalysis that is a whitewash you know, and predominantly led by men. And then the women who have jumped in, well, they've actually doubled down on the stuff that was written by the men. So, you know, and this is all a phallocentric model. So can we please just preface this all with that and then see what we think about it? And then we're going to bring in more different writers to actually think about this. But instead, we don't. We kind of go, so, you know, this is Freud, this is Winnicott, this is Klein, this is important stuff. You know, and then you might go to kind of other theorists, depending on your orientation, psychoanalytic orientation, and go, this is the important stuff again. But we don't ever really go, do you know what's really important is when you're working clinically, and there's lots of research around this, the person sat opposite you, if they're identifying as a woman, or if they're somebody who menstruates, then that could be really relevant to your practice. And how do you bring that into the room? How are you going to talk about that? How do you make it relevant that if you're set opposite a man and you're a woman, that that might be in the room as well? How do we talk about that? How do we talk about a body that's aging? How do we talk about if you're a clinician, for example, you know, a woman who's going into menopause and you might have hot flushes? And how do we actually talk about that in the consulting room? And how do we bring that in in a way and think about what that might mean for both of you sat there in the way that we apply to most other things, but somehow we don't with women. And, you know, another great example I had was um, one, I, again, a very senior analyst when I was training, 
And I was, you know, had gone through sort of meticulously about how it was going to be when I would meet and sit down, you know, have this momentous occasion of sitting down with my first patient and talking to them and seeing how it was going to be, even down to timing, how it was going to be when I would walk from the waiting room back to my consulting room. And I kind of said, yeah, and of course, I'll sit next to the door. And he just looked at me and said, well, why would you do that? And I said, oh, so that I could leave straight away if I need to, if there's an emergency or, you know, because I won't know the person that I'm meeting. And he just went, would you really be able to get out of the room that quickly? And then just moved on. And of course, what didn't give time for me to say is that actually in my previous career in the NHS, I'd worked in treatment and assessment centres where you absolutely a standard practice sat next to the door so you could leave for your own safety or if you needed to go and get somebody else to help you around safety as well. And that I had done it on a number of occasions. But there was no sort of thinking. The bit that was striking about it, which again is not to say there should be sort of policies around you know how people should be in a consulting room or meet their first patients if they haven't met them before although I actually think there should very much be those policies in place it's more around there was no consideration that my lived experience as a woman was different from his or that what it might mean for me as a woman to be sat there and have somebody walk into my room who I've never met before and I didn't have much information on there was no sort of conceptualization of actually women's lived experiences and the statistics on it, again, are just horrific around the number of women who have been sexually assaulted. One in five women have been the victim of stalking, things like that, that just didn't register for him because why would they? They've never been brought into psychoanalysis and thought about in those terms and thought about actually this needs to be present because that's a woman's lived experience. And I'm just, you know, giving sort of very slight examples here. There are much more severe examples that need to be thought about. But it, I mean, that's just a kind of starter for 10, that those things just aren't present. Yeah, and I think that you, um, yeah, you're right. I did ask a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what have I done? Um, but the, but I think that uh, there's a, a in in the the chapter of the missing period in psychoanalysis uh, in your book, and you're talking uh, about um, uh, a performance, the interior scroll as woman as women here and now, uh, Carolee. Uh, Schneeman, I don't know. She's new to me. Um, and you write that in her performance, uh, she graphically demonstrates and reappropriates what belongs to her, and that there is and should be an intimate interplay between the physicality of being female and the mind of being female, rather than carving her body and mind into separate sections as was being required of her to succeed is in a male environment, the totality of her mind and body being mind and body being too much for the men around her. Can you talk about what it is that she did and what her performance was? Cause I thought it was fascinating. She, I mean, Carly Schneeman is amazing. Um, so she was a live performance artist and also a painter too, but, um, and she's kind of was in the sixties, seventies foreground of kind of feminist art period. Um, but what she amazingly did in this very famous piece, Interior Scroll, and there's different stories about what the scroll is, and this is um, really quite graphic, but she went into this space, so it was a performance, and went up, stood on a table, daubed herself with paint, she was naked, and then as the part of the performance, she removes a scroll from her vagina, and as she and as the scroll comes out, she unfurls it and reads out what she has written on it. And there, there's different um, variations as to the purpose of what was written on it. But the main story is that it was a rebuke to um, her being told by a male producer of how she needed to be and what she needed to do to make her art successful. And in a way, but and the thing that is, um, there was a recent um, Carolee Schneeman exhibition actually in London, which was just amazing. It had stills from her performance and had um, the scroll there. And actually, 
on the scroll, which is um, fascinating in terms of thinking about abject materials and sort of separating the body and mind. There was blood down each side of the scroll on it. And there was this sort of miraculous being where she got up and she's um, a very stereotypically beautiful, striking woman. And so the male gaze, of course, is looking at this naked female body and she stands there, owns it, takes out this scroll again to, to you know, bringing in thoughts of disgust and of the abject and the horror of her actually taking ownership of her own body and reads out this response to this criticism about how she actually will not give up who she is and thinking about, you know, what she is wanting to do. And in a way, what she is doing, and I sort of juxtapose this with the, I think, a hideous picture of um, Charcot's auditorium, Salpetria Hospital, which hangs above um, Freud's couch in Mersfield Gardens at the Freud Museum, which is that stereotypical picture of the woman, the hysteric, being rolled out into Charcot's auditorium, and all the men are kind of sitting around, clamoring forward, looking at this woman. And she, of course, is reclining, being held up by these men with this kind of burgeoning bosom coming out of their chest and slightly unbuttoned at the top. And it's almost the complete opposite of what Freud was doing in the what she is going is actually I know what's inside me and she's reaching into her vagina and kind of going you know this is not a vagina that needs to be filled with a penis which is a psychoanalytic trope instead she's filled it with actually what she wants to fill it with and it's a response to going this is what I think and as a woman this is what I think where she had been told to be very rational and to be very kind of buttoned down in her approach and for me it just felt like that is sort of the perfect response or the perfect antidote to psychoanalysis and in many ways where psychoanalysis for me goes wrong in that there is that very much a a, or can be a sort of lack of collaboration that sense of knowing that I know better what's in your mind than you do and it, and in many ways, that's some of the you know if you go back to Dora, that's the story of Dora, isn't it? In that actually she goes, I know much better than you think, and and in a way that's what Carolee Schneeman does, which is it's a remarkable performance piece actually. So is that what we need? Because I I think that your your book um, begins to to ask the question and and says you know what what do we need? What do we need? Um, for, for psychoanalysis to take the first step of putting itself on the couch to grapple with the unconscious fantasies about women and to begin coping with uh, what it is we're working hard uh, not not to see. Um, how, how has the book been been received? I mean, you you it's out there now. Um, how has it been received? It is out there now. It's quite interesting how it has been received or not been received. Um, in the the absolute joy of writing a book for me, and sort of I've become quite evangelical to anybody who listens, to say just write books. It's great. It's great fun, because I've had emails from people all around the world, kind of telling me their experience and almost a bit of a traumatic outpouring of going, "This happened to me in my analysis. This person said this to me." You know, and it's kind of it's been quite lovely the support I've had from it and most certainly when talking to groups it's really fascinating in that there's this sort of quietness when you start talking about it and then you try and make it accessible which was a very deliberate bit on my part I wanted the book to be accessible I didn't want it to be a kind of frightening scary if you don't know this you won't understand anything else um but once people get into the conversation it's really hard to stop them And that's the really interesting bit, that there's an absolute conversation to be had here. And not just people going, oh, you know, I've been treated like this by men. It's more of a kind of, wow, I've got a space now where I can say this, you know, and a lot of um, intimidation that people have felt on their psychoanalytic trainings as well about actually how do I speak up about this? You know, is it, am I turning against psychoanalysis by saying this? You know, will my head get chopped off if I say this? And actually, when you kind of go, no, look, there's a lot here that we need to be angry about. You know, this this hasn't been OK and it still isn't OK. Then you get this outpouring, which is phenomenal to actually have that space and a real privilege, actually, for people to join in on that level. 
Well, it is. It's it's a it's a very accessible book for such a huge uh, topic, a neglected topic, as you said. And as Adam Phillips says, it's the first book. Um, but you you did it, and it's really accessible. It's um, uh, and digestible. I think it's uh, you know seventy pages, um, but there's there's not one wasted sentence. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, oh, just yeah, it's it's great. Um, at the you we, we said at the top that you're you're working on your dissertation. What are you working on now? What's the the current study? The next um, book. What- one of the things I'm working on now is the causes of misogyny because in a way it's so interesting because it can't just be one thing it can't just be around developmental failure and that's it it can't just be around you know it's too easy to go well women have been made the bin for you know all the hateful feelings in the world which most certainly is true but it has to be overdetermined. There has to be many, many strands to this and that's the thing that really intrigues me and most certainly from my clinical work I find it really fascinating, both for men and women. Obviously, I'll have a sensitivity. My radar is there around misogyny, you know, around what is it that's going on? I mean, just one of the things I find fascinating is when people choose to go see a man or a woman. That's really interesting and what it's about. And so there's those aspects to it that I really want to kind of dig into a bit more about what can we say about what is causing misogyny and why is it still thriving and in many ways having a real upsurge at the moment as well. So it's it's that's the current thing that fascinates me too at the moment. Great. Well, I hope uh, I hope you'll come back and, and talk to us with the next book. I would love to. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good. Um, we have been talking with Michaela Chamberlain. Her book is Misogyny in Psychoanalysis, published 2022 by Phoenix Press. Uh, and the imprint is uh, Phoenix, excuse me, Phoenix Publishing House. The imprint is Firing the Mind. Michaela, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.